Just a warning before we start today's show, this episode deals with discussions of sexual harassment and exploitation. My colleague Desmond Butler is an investigative reporter for The Post, and he got a tip for a story at a moment when he really was not thinking about work. My father died in October last year. I'm sorry. Well, I miss him. So Desmond in this moment was trying to deal with his grief and thinking a lot about his dad and his dad's legacy, because his dad was someone who made a sport famous. In the wake of that, I've been having to go through a lot of his stuff. There's a cavernous basement. This was his darkroom, which is still in pretty good shape. I spent a lot of time here as a kid, sitting on the floor while he was developing his photos and making prints. My father's name was George Butler. He was a photographer and a documentary filmmaker. This is the mother load here. Lots of boxes, lots of cobwebs. A lot of my father's old film canisters from multiple different films are here. You can smell the film. He made a lot of films over decades. They ranged from Antarctic exploration to the Mars rover program. But the most famous film that he made was a film called Pumping Iron. I think I've heard of this film. Yeah, people like to say it's a cult classic. (laughs) It came out in 1977. The film was kind of a sensation when it came out. Oiled, shaved, and on display. The former Mr. Universe and star of the movie Pumping Iron. Pumping Iron introduced Arnold Schwarzenegger to the world. The bodybuilder of bodybuilders, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mr. Olympia for the past five years. All Mr. Universes from the past five years or so come get together in one contest to find out who is the best. So when the memorial service for Desmond's father was held at the end of 2021, Desmond expected to see people from all parts of his dad's life. There were a lot of people from the bodybuilding world there. I was walking out of the church and a guy called Wayne D'Amelia stopped me. So when we came out, you recognized me right away. I'm saying, wow, that's little Desmond. He's all grown up. Wow, time flies. And I've known Wayne all my life, off and on. He used to promote bodybuilding events and run professional bodybuilding in America. I ran the Olympia 18 times, the Mr. Olympia more than anyone else. I ran Night of Champions 26 times. I ran he became my Olympia. father's kind of tour guide to the sport. He said, you seem to know a lot who won this, who won that, what's going on here and there. And we just became friends that way. And he remained a friend of my father's for the rest of his life. George was a nice guy. You know, he was just just a nice guy. Wayne said, this is not the time to talk about this, but I really want to come see you. I want to suggest an idea for an investigative story. Then about two months later, he came down to Washington and he sat down and laid out these kind of startling allegations about what was going on in the sport. There's been allegations of intimidation, porn, 
sexual abuse of the women, fixing it a contest. I was floored. I mean, my editor, Trish Wilson, was actually with us. And I turned to Trish after he left and I said, if 25% of that is true, we've got a lot of reporting to do. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 16th. Today, Desmond Butler takes us inside the world of bodybuilding and what he's uncovered about what's happened to the sport since the release of Pumping Iron. So Desmond, I'm going to circle back to your investigation in a second. But before that, I just want to talk a little bit more about this film, Pumping Iron. Like, what was it? Did it have a plot? And what was it about the movie that got so many people's attention? Well, it was dramatic. My father was a very good storyteller. And so it followed a number of bodybuilders as they went through the training and competing. And the characters were, you know, they were big characters. It was beautifully shot. And it was in the middle of a real scene. It was Venice Beach in the mid-70s. Gold's Gym, Venice, California. A kind of subculture that is captivating and will never be the same again. And it had a, I think it had a great soundtrack, too. <laughs> so. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm just thinking back to the 70s. Like, I think that there's a way that we think about bodybuilding now and, like, what it looks for somebody to be a bodybuilder. Like, huge guy, huge muscles. But I'm just thinking back then, like, it must have been pretty remarkable for people to, like, see what it looks like when these people have developed muscles that are so, like, beyond anything many of us can imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think it was mesmerizing. Needless to say, bodybuilding was not at the front of the American consciousness in 1977, and it spawned a kind of craze for fitness. Are you ready to do the workout? And Richard Simmons and Jane Fonda took over. One, two. Are you sick and tired of boring look-alike exercise videos? Unlock your body's potential. Solo flex. Ultra Slim Fast. master will give you excellent results. A lot of people think it had a big cultural impact on the U.S. and the world. How do you think things have changed since your dad first introduced bodybuilding to American pop culture back in the 70s? The biggest change is probably that there are gyms in every town in America. And so there are a lot more people who are doing bodybuilding, essentially. I mean, in terms of competitive athletes, it's probably in the tens of thousands. But of course, as you know, there are millions of people who go to gyms. And in that sense, there are millions of amateur bodybuilders. Can you explain a little bit about bodybuilding, like 101, and how it actually works? Because it's not like... This is a big tell on my part. I feel like the closest thing I can compare it to is CrossFit, you know, where people are, like, lifting weights. But they're actually, like, those people are lifting weights as, like, the the, the performance of lifting is the thing that you're competing at. But in this, you're, like, lifting weights, but you're not actually competing on the weight that you're lifting, right? It's about how you look after you lift all those weights. It's not like powerlifting. It's not about how much weight you can lift. It's an aesthetic sport. 
All right, we're going to start things off with our fitness international. This, of course, is your round one two-piece. You get up. Group one, on the center line, please. You show off your body. Quarter turn to the right. And your muscles. And face forward. And judges rate you. I need one, Allison, four, Kate, six, Sarah, seven, Alicia, eight. So, so it's almost like a, like a beauty pageant, honestly, for people with probably more muscle mass than yeah, most Yeah, queens. I mean, it, it, I think there's a fair debate about whether it's a sport or entertainment. The reason I think it's a sport is because it takes such extreme preparation. I mean, first of all, there are a number of categories for male and female bodybuilders, and they're generally based on the level of musculature. So on the female side, you start out with bikini, which is the least muscled, and it goes up to the full bodybuilding category, which is unlimited in a sense. So you are preparing yourself for a specific aesthetic, that, and there are written criteria of what your body's supposed to look like and how you present it and how you pose. And so the bodybuilders perform in front of a panel of judges. They come out onto a stage. They do specific poses that they have to do, and then they also have a kind of routine with music that is a little more creative. They also come out together and pose against each other. Thank you, Sandy. How about a big hand, folks? There's no question that a big part of this sport is vanity. What does it take for someone to go up on a stage in the skimpiest bikini and flex their muscles and pose in front of an audience? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it seems like it takes a lot of courage to be able to do that. Absolutely. And it takes, an, you know, to be a top bodybuilder takes going through extreme training not only doing cardio and lifting huge amounts of weights, but um, the bodybuilders do extreme diets. And unfortunately, a lot of them are taking extreme amount of steroids and diuretics and a lot of things that really are not good for the body. Fortunately for me, between my choices in life and not taking so much that uh, I blew my organs out, I'm very fortunate, plus I have really good genetics. This is Gina Jones, who's been a bodybuilder for decades. It's worth a detour to talk to Gina because she knows what it takes to become a bodybuilder. We are pushing the human body beyond its limits. And in our sport, we just happen to be doing it with steroids because we're creating an illusion. And until they stop the drug use, we will still proceed to put on the freakiest of the freakish. If you look at the athletes who are on the stage at the top events now and compare them to the athletes that were, say, in Pumping Iron in the 1970s to Arnold Schwarzenegger, there is no comparison. Really? They're bulkier. Their definition is much more extreme. And you get to that aesthetic through steroids. The HGH, the human growth hormone, makes your bones grow. You get these girls and guys and you start seeing their jaw lines and their foreheads grow and they kind of look like Skeletor married the mask and they had a baby. What it's meant is that athletes in the sport are increasingly taking big risks in order to perform. Humans will have blood pressure issues, your blood can thicken, which in effect will damage your organs. And 
some of them have come out on the wrong side of that. There's been a stream of top competitors who've died young. I'm a moderator on one of the strength boards on Facebook, and there's like over 5,000 of us. All the pros, we're all, all of the people are on there. And we lose our members on a regular basis. And what do you make of that? I mean, I, I think a lot of people would hear that and say, well, we know that there are risks for steroids. These athletes are taking on a risk that they're aware of and, you know, for potential fame and fortune, um, but that it's ultimately on them to take care of their own bodies. Well, I think in, in any sport, the people who are running it have a responsibility to look after the well-being of the athletes. In bodybuilding, it even goes beyond that because it's the judges who are deciding ultimately what the aesthetic is or the people who hire the judges. Who benefits within the sport financially from the steroid use? If the steroids weren't there, the application fees wouldn't be there. So the promoters, the people that run the sport, the people get paid to take care of the sport, the events, all that stuff wouldn't be there. They've created a heck of an institution. You know, you can say it's just up to the athletes, but the athletes will do anything they can to win. So if they are pushing for big, you know, enormous bodybuilders up on the stage to win, then in a sense, it's encouraging steroid abuse. Interesting. So your sense from the folks that you've talked to and the reporting that The Post has done is that the people in power are essentially turning a blind eye to steroid use and to the potential fatal consequences of, of people using steroids in bodybuilding. There's no serious drug testing in the sport. Wow, that surprises me. If you had serious drug testing in the sport, you wouldn't have people as as big as they are. Huh. What are the biggest bodybuilding competitions? So there are two professional events that are like the Super Bowl for, for bodybuilding. There's the Arnold Classic, which is Arnold Schwarzenegger's event, and then there's the Olympia. And mm. the top bodybuilders in the world are really focused on those events. And what is at stake for them? Like, what, what do you win if you are the winner of one of those kinds of competitions? At the very top level... The prize money is in the hundreds of thousands. Whoa. But there are very few bodybuilders that can actually make a living from the sport. The economics of it is that you're competing for prestige in the fitness industry more broadly, and you can monetize that prestige. You can become a trainer, and if you say that you've won a number of pro shows or you know, even that you were a pro, people want to work with you. You can also endorse products. And so there are ways of making a living in the industry generally, but most bodybuilders subsidize themselves to compete in the sport. So for someone who is just entering the sport of bodybuilding and wants to make it to the top, wants to be, you know, the kind of person who's winning these international competitions, how do you do that? Well, there are two major leagues in American bodybuilding. You have the National Physique Committee, or NPC, on the amateur side and the IFBB Pro League on the pro side. 
They're both run by a guy called Jim Mannion and his family. His son, J.M. Mannion, is kind of official photographer of the sport. And his grandson, Tyler Mannion, is the heir apparent. He's one of the leading judges in the sport. He's involved in the organization. To break into the sport, you have to go through a number of hurdles. Most bodybuilders, once they've brought their bodies to a certain level, they start out in very local contests. There are actually hundreds of contests across America and more globally. You start as an amateur and you have to work your way up. To get to be a pro, you have to place in a certain number of important amateur contests. And when you when you have you know met that, you get a pro card, which gives you the right to compete in pro contests. I, I just want to go back. Maybe this is normal for the sport. It strikes me as strange that there are two different leagues, but that they're both owned by the same family. Um, so Jim Mannion is really the juggernaut of the sport. He controls the whole thing. The NPC and the IFBB Pro League are the most prestigious organizations in the world in bodybuilding, and all the top bodybuilders want to compete in the big events for those uh, leagues. And he controls everything along with his family. So it is widely known in the sport that if you want to succeed, you not only have to dedicate your life in the gym and in the kitchen, you've got to please this family. Hmm. So tell me a little bit more about the implications of that. The implications are pretty serious for competitors. J.M. Mannion, Jim's son, who's the official photographer for the main news organization in the sport, became a manager of female athletes. And the kind of understanding was is if you were on his team, he could help you place well in contests. And beyond that, he would pressure women to do his photo shoots. And most of the time, they were pretty racy photo shoots, usually in a bikini. But he was also asking a lot of women to take their clothes off for softcore pornography. He also ran a series of softcore porn sites over many years and had a a way of pressuring women to do this because he was, after all, the son of the head of the sport. And it was widely believed that if you didn't do what he said or if you refused him, that you would have no future in the sport. We talked to a woman called Mandy Henderson, who was very courageous and spoke on the record. I got started in the bodybuilding industry when I was about 25. I decided that I, like, I was at the gym working out at, like, the age of 18, and I saw a female that she had muscle, and I loved it, and I totally thought, like, that's what I want to look like. I want to look like that kind of fitness model. And her story really exemplifies some of the themes that we were reporting on. So we were in California at the time, and I was working out at this little mom-and-pop gym, and I asked one of the trainers, I said, how do you get into, like, I'm thinking of competing, will you train me? 
he said, yeah, I'll train you. But I don't know much about the competition world. But there's a promoter that I know. His name is John Tooman. And I will give you his number, and I'll tell him that you're going to call him, and, and he can, you can get some information from him. And I know he, he does the shows in California. So I'm like, okay, cool. So she was coming up through the sport, really working hard to get her pro card. She also was getting to know a judge called John Tooman. I talked to John on the phone, and he said, yeah, you should do my show. It's in Sacramento. And Tooman had at one point asked her if she would come up to his hotel room ahead of a competition so that he could give her some pointers. He said, okay, you know, why don't you put your, your bikini on, your competition suit on, and then come down to my room and, and I'll show you the poses that you need to do. She said that she found this a little strange, but she was wise enough to bring her husband. I get my suit on, I put clothes over, and my husband and my son and I, we all go down to John Tooman's room. And so when John opened the door, I think there was like a look like, oh, you have your husband and your son with you. Like that didn't know that was gonna happen. Like it was, it was a shocker. And she got a sense from Tooman that she really had to play ball if she ever wanted to get her pro card. John Tooman tells me there's gonna be a photo shoot the next day with uh, J.M. Mannion. So John Tooman's like, you need to do the shoot. It's really, really good. Eventually you need to get signed with J.M. because that's, you know, that's, he makes everybody in the industry. And so she agreed to do these photo shoots with J.M. And at one of them... We start doing the photo shoot and, you know, when our clothes are, the lingerie starts coming off and it's getting more and more revealing. Then, of course, we were like the positions that they were having us be in, they were very sexual and very um, just, um, it was just a very intimate but uncomfortable photo shoot. And I went into it and I, f I feel kind of silly because I, I should have known what I was getting into. And, um, but in the back of my mind, I just kept thinking, just go with it because this is going to get your pro card. Like, you just need to do a photo shoot and then you're going to get a pro card because that's what these men keep telling you. John Tooman came up behind me and he pressed his, the front of his body against me and I could feel his um, crotch area against my back area. I remember it just sent chills up my spine. So she felt like she had gone through something really terrible to advance her career. And yet, even after that, she wasn't advancing in the sport. It was clear, like it was clearly said, like if you do this photo shoot, you're going to get your pro card. So um, I go and I do the show and I end up not even in the top 15. And I was just crushed. And so she confronted John Tooman. I was like, what the hell? What happened? You said this was going to happen. And... He's like, well, you didn't come to my room last night. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And John Tooman is like, well, you should have come to my room last night. If you would have come to my room last night, you would have had your pro card. She said Tooman later told her that she had misunderstood him. Did you talk to Tooman about Henderson's allegations? I did. He basically said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a married man. I asked him 
you know, do you want to hear about the specific allegations? And he said, no, I don't, because it's all lies. So what happened to Henderson after this? Henderson was also a police officer, but she got into some trouble. She was accused of faking an injury and collecting workers' comp benefits improperly. In 2019, she pleaded no contest to a felony count and was sentenced to six months of house arrest. Since then, her record has been expunged and she's returned to bodybuilding, competing in a class for athletes over 40. After the break, Desmond tells us more about the Manian family, how they quietly consolidated their power over the sport, and how the family wields that power. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Clearly, Mandy Henderson is not the only woman saying that things like this happened to her. You mentioned that photos of female bodybuilders were also posted to softcore porn sites that were registered by J.M. Mannion. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what your reporting has shown about what is concerning about what's on these websites? So after we got the tip about the websites that J.M. was running— we found that they were no longer active, but we were able to track down archived versions of them. And we could see versions from over 15 years of what, what had been posted. And from that, we were able to identify over 200 female athletes who appeared on these sites. Most of them were uh, scantily clad, but you know, a certain number were nudes. And from that list, we started reaching out to women. We talked to 20 women, and a certain number agreed to share their stories. And what did they say about the fact that their photos were on these websites? Some of the women that we talked to were surprised that their photos were on the websites. We talked to a competitor called Jen Gates, who won the Olympia in one category, so she went to the very top of the sport. Working with JM, I would go to Pennsylvania and just do a photo shoot in his studio. I never really was sure what the photos were for, and I never really asked questions. She had done a photo shoot that she didn't love with JM in a bikini, and other photos of her in, in a bikini appeared on the site. And were you aware at the time that he was um, running softcore porn websites? No, I was never aware or thought that my name was on a soft porn site. I never said, yes, please sign me up for that. I would never sign up for that. 
mean, to be clear, like, people can decide if they want to pose for nude photos or post them on softcore pornographic websites. But that in this case, these are women who, in many cases, sound like they did not consent to having their photos put on this website. Look, it's widely known that in a workplace or in a sport, a power dynamic matters. And if the people who are controlling your fate are asking you to do things you don't want to do, it raises some serious questions about consent. Mm-hmm. So what is J.M. Mannion and, and other members of the family, like, what do they say about these allegations? We received a statement from a lawyer representing Jim Mannion, the NPC and the IFBB Pro League, that said that they emphatically deny any and all wrongdoing. Regarding the specific allegations that women are widely exploited in the sport, neither J.M. nor Jim Mannion responded to our questions. But we did receive a statement through a crisis communications firm. It said, As part of our efforts to grow the sport, we've expanded events and opportunities for all competitors, grown prize purses for female athletes, and improved communications for our competitors to raise any concerns they may have with an event or their experience. We address all concerns raised with the utmost care, concern, and timeliness. The statement also said that more than half of registered competitors are women and that many shows feature all-female judging panels. So in terms of what is important about these allegations, I mean, it also reflects on the judging, right? Like if there is this sort of like pay-to-play, like you have to do this in order to get your pro card or win competitions— I mean, these are competitions where potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars are at stake, and the judging process that's a part of it seems like it's not above board. Yeah, implicit in what we were hearing from the women was that they thought the judging was corrupt. And so then we went out and reported about the judging, and we we actually heard first-person accounts of judging being manipulated. And that goes to the heart of the sport, to the integrity of the sport. And have the Manians said anything about this part, the idea that their competitions are corrupt? They've declined to answer questions about JM's influence on the contest. Tell me a little bit more about Jim Mannion and his public persona and the way that he has wielded this kind of power in the bodybuilding community. As we began asking people who Jim Mannion was, one of the things that we were struck by is how many people we talked to talked about how he seemed to be often imitating The Sopranos or The Godfather. Oh, my gosh. And talked about the family. And he would talk about his earners like Tony Soprano did on in the show. So a lot of the people around Mannion had the impression that he was consciously cultivating this image of being the head of a organization. So clearly Jim Mannion and the Mannion family, I mean, if they have so much power in this sport, if they if they um, essentially own the two major leagues, I mean, I imagine that must be a moneymaker for them. Here's the interesting thing. When the NPC started, it was a 501c3 charity. What? It had a small board of trustees and a larger board of governors. And Jim Mannion was the president of the board. The boards were meant to approve important steps. 
The people that we talked to described how over decades, the oversight melted away. They stopped getting financial reports. There were no longer elections. And it's really about how Jim Mannion consolidated absolute power over the organization. But what our reporting showed was that he actually made it private. He he took it over. So the people that you talked to who were part of these governing bodies that were dissolved, what did they say about, you know, about the fact that, that there wasn't oversight over these leagues? When we first started reporting on this and talking to members of the board, some of them had figured out that the NPC had been privatized. How long were you on the board of the NPC? I was on the board probably for 15 years. But there were other board members who who had no idea until we told them. When did you become aware that it was privatized? Um, I actually don't know. I mean, was I the first to tell you? I think so. Which was unbelievable because it happened. Wait, they thought they were still on a board that had been dissolved? (laughs) Well, so so the NPC had board meetings once a year. It was an annual event that happened at a particular at a national amateur competition. And after Jim Mannion had, I think it's fair to say, quietly privatized the NPC, he continued having board meetings for subsequent years. Wait, so these were like fake board meetings? Well, they were board meetings for an organization that didn't exist. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And then there was the pandemic and there were excuses about why there hadn't been board meetings. But what did they say? I mean, were they mad? I mean, I, I think there's a lot of anger out there about how Jim Mannion has run this sport sort of publicly in the bodybuilding world, in the kind of in-house media it's a lot more sycophantic. I think that's fair to say. But sort of quietly simmering under the surface over years, there's this buildup of anger. And it kind of exploded when we started asking these questions. So why would Jim Mannion take an organization that was previously a charitable nonprofit and turn it into a private company? I mean, I think the, the, the answer in my head is like, Probably because then you could make money off of it. But like how much money could he be making from this? It's really hard to know. When the organization was a nonprofit, we can see the tax returns because you have to file them. There were millions of dollars of revenue. And yet in the sport, the promoters who put on the shows pay most of the costs. So there's a real question of where all those revenues to the NPC were going. We heard concerns early on that the Mannion family had a stake in a clothing company that was selling NPC-branded clothing. Um, That would be one way to to make money, and it's not clear that they ever had the clearance from the board to do that. So when it comes to the business side, what did the Mannions say when you asked them about how they ran the league? They sent us a one-sentence response. The NPC was formed and has always been governed in accordance with all federal, state, and local laws. Desmond, you know, talking to you at the beginning of this conversation, you talk about bodybuilding 
with such a sense of awe and a a real sense of appreciation for the beauty of it and the discipline and commitment that it requires. So for you to to see so much of the the allegations of wrongdoing, of of things happening behind the scenes, I mean, how does that make you feel? Or, Or does it like bring down what makes this sport so special for you? I literally stood at the knees of bodybuilders when I was a really little child. It's been an important part of my life, but I didn't really think about it for decades. And I'm an investigative reporter, so I bring a a very different light on the sport than my father did. To kind of turn back to this sport that had had this effect on me and investigate it and see what was going on behind the scenes has been amazing. And in some ways, like, both a powerful and maybe kind of bittersweet mirror image that your dad created stories that told what was beautiful about this sport and that, you know, that your job now has been to show the stuff that is not beautiful about this sport. My father really tried to tell a great story about bodybuilding and to bring out the beauty of it. He also told me a lot of stories of what was going on behind the scenes, but that that's not what he was focused on because he was an artistic documentary filmmaker. I've brought a completely different discipline to this. Look, I mean, our reporting has raised some really serious questions about the way the Mannion family has run the sport. Ultimately, it's going to be up to the athletes to decide whether or not they want to compete in these organizations. I think it'll be really interesting to see where bodybuilding goes from here. Desmond Butler is an investigative reporter for The Post. Additional reporting came from Ted Muldoon, Alice Lee, Amy Britton, John Sullivan, Jen Abelson, and Nate Jones. To read more of Built and Broken, the Post's multi-part investigation into the world of bodybuilding, check out the links in our show notes. This episode was produced and mixed by senior producer Ted Muldoon and edited by Trish Wilson and Sarah Childress, along with director of audio Renita Jablonski and Post Report's executive producer Maggie Penman. Project management by Casey Chaper. Copy editing by J.J. Evans. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. The other members of the Post Reports team include our supervising senior producer, Rena Flores, my co-host, Alahe Azadi, Lucy Perkins, our editor. The show is also produced by Eliza Dennis, Sharla Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Emma Talkoff, Sabi Robinson, and Renny Svernovsky. Our engineer is Sean Carter, and I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. 
I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.